Melisandre Avishai, or, or Melanie as her name turns out to be, is a scarlet sorceress with many secrets. She's both a red priestess of the Temple of Relor, as well as a Shadowbinder, which are only two of the most secretive and powerful orders of magic wielders anywhere to be found in Planetus. Both of these orders have ties to Ashai by the Shadow, where Melisandre hails from, and Ashai is pretty much the most secret-laden city a fantasy author could possibly dream up. Turns out there was an entire pre-Long Night, pre-Valerian, Dragonlord civilization hidden there, and that's a pretty big secret. And if you don't know what I'm talking about here, make sure you check out Great Empire of the Dawn, Dragonlords of Ancient Ashai. So, secrets upon secrets. And secrets are the lifeblood of any good fantasy story, aren't they? Melisandre's secrets, some of which do involve lifeblood, it must be said, certainly cast a long shadow on the plot, if you take my meaning. It seems clear to me and to most people in the fandom that Melisandre and her secrets are set to play a very important role in the conclusion of the story, right? She's one of the only people with her attention fixed squarely on the threat of the others. She knows a ton about Azor High, ancient prophecy, and magic in general. She figures to play a role in the impending hair wash, I mean resurrection of Jon Snow. And of course, Melisandre is just plain old one of the most powerful magic users anywhere in the story. It can therefore be no accident that George has positioned this most powerful sorceress here at the wall here at the end of days, and no accident that he's given her a background in both shadowbinding and relorist fire magic. I have found that each of these two magical orders holds an ancient secret about the ultimate nature of sorcery in a song of ice and fire. And our dear friend Melanie will need to bring both of these secret magics to bear in order to help save the world. That's right, she's gonna help save the world. However, to learn these ancient truths, we must do as Melisandre has done and journey into the forbidden shadowlands where sunlight struggles to survive, but glass candles bloom with intolerable light and ghost grass glows with the souls of the damned. With Melisandre as our guide, we'll be able to learn much and more about the nature of magic and we'll even gain a glimpse into the dark future that awaits some of our characters at the end of the story. So hey there, friends, it's David Lightbringer. That's right, David Lightbringer, not Lucifer means Lightbringer. Although you can still call me LML, no worries. I've actually had a lot of questions about this recently. Thank you guys for <laughs> taking interest. And I've got a pretty good explanation which I'll serve up at the end of the video so as to uh, keep things moving here. Please make sure not only that you're subscribed to the channel, but that the notification bell is set to all because YouTube has and will and likes to change those preferences on you, which is why some of you might have been missing notifications for streams and video premieres, even though you're subbed. Now let's drop the red curtain and get on with the show. All right, so like we said, Melisandre of Ashai is both a shadowbinder and a red priestess of the Temple of Relore, also called the Red Temple. These are supposed to be entirely separate orders, and on the surface they appear to be. But just as the practitioners of these orders conceal their true faces behind masks of lacquered wood, tattoo, and illusion, the deeper truths of these two orders may not be what we expect. In fact, the more I studied the magical abilities of the Shadowbinders and the Reloris, the more evident it became that they must share a common origin rooted in the events surrounding Azor High, the Long Night, and even the Bloodstone Emperor and the ruin of the Great Empire of the Dawn, which 
left Ashai and the Shadowlands magically blighted and cloaked in evil darkness. To speak less cryptically, what I'm saying is that the closer we look behind the masks of these two shadowy magical orders, the harder it gets to tell whether Melisandre is using Shadowbinder or Relorist fire magic in any given instance. And there's a very good reason for that, which I'll reveal over the course of this series. We're going to start with the magic used by the followers of Red Relu, Red Relor, whose full official title is Relor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. But as you'll soon see, we won't be able to go very far without mentioning those shadow binders, whatever they are. So the Reloris, as I like to call them, are, loosely speaking, Fire priests and priestesses. Relor can best be understood as a personification of holy fire, very much along the lines of Ahura Mazda of Persian Zoroastrianism, which George has said is an influence on the religion of Relor. In fact, let's open this up properly with a little prayer to Relor, if you will, and this comes from a Davos chapter of A Storm of Swords. Davos looked down from an arched window in the gallery above. He watched Melisandre lift her arms as if to embrace the shivering flames. Relore, she sang out in a voice loud and clear. You are the light in our eyes, the fire in our hearts, the heat in our loins. Yours is the sun that warms our days. Yours the stars that guard us in the dark of night. Lord of light, defend us. The night is dark and full of terrors. Queen Selyse led the responses, her pinched face full of fervor. King Stannis stood beside her, jaw clenched hard, the points of his red-gold crown shimmering whenever he moved his head. Alright, so as you can see, Relore is basically every kind of fire and light in the world. And elsewhere, Melisandre counts the bright moon and even a small torch as, quote, gifts of Relore. That's gifts of R'hllor, not gifts of R'hllor. And of course, don't forget the fires beneath the earth. Those belong to R'hllor too. This is Salador San speaking to Davos in a storm of swords. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. Queer talking I have heard of hungry fires within the mountain and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames. There are shafts, they say, and... Secret stairs down into the mountain's heart, into hot places where only she may walk unburned. It is enough and more to give an old man such terrors that sometimes he can scarcely find the strength to eat. Well, R'hllor be praised. Yeah, okay, so now just to answer a question I'm often asked, no, I, I don't think there is an actual entity behind the concept of R'hllor. Rather, I think that magical power in A Song of Ice and Fire flows through the forces of nature, such as ice and fire, and those sources of power are, therefore, perceived as powerful deities. After all, if we real-life humans are fond of anthropomorphizing forces of nature, such as fire, or storms, or the sea, as gods and goddesses, and we definitely are, how much more would that be true for fictional humans inhabiting a magic-laden fantasy world? The important thing to realize is that Relorism is less a religion, actually, and more a set of practices and beliefs which have sprung up around actual sorcery. Sorcery rooted in fire and shadow, as the name God of Flame and Shadow implies. What we want to try to figure out is, what is the extent of that sorcery? What is the true power of Relorism, if you will? From where did it come, and how did it originate? And most importantly, what role will Relorist fire magic 
play in the end of the story. We're going to answer all of these questions over the course of this series, so don't you worry. All right, so the most famous magic of the Reloris is probably that of gazing into a fire to see the future, right? That's something Melisandre does often, and she's even able to teach this art to other followers of lore, like Stannis, or even Sir Axel Florent, according to Sir Axel Florent, anyway. This next quote is from Melisandre's highly revealing lone POV chapter, which comes in a dance with dragons, and it actually offers a pretty thorough explanation of this magical art of seeing into the flames. Whenever she was asked what she saw within her fires, Melisandre would answer, much and more. But seeing was never as simple as those words suggested. It was an art, and like all arts, it demanded mastery, discipline, study, pain, that too. R'hllor spoke to his chosen ones through blessed fire, in a language of ash and cinder and twisting flame that only a god could truly grasp. Melisandre had practiced her art for years beyond count, and she had paid the price. There was no one, even in her order, who had her skill at seeing the secrets half-revealed and half-concealed within the sacred flames. All right, it should be noted that Future Sight also comes to people in A Song of Ice and Fire by other means. For example, the ghost of High Heart sees the future in her dreams, which come from the old gods of the Weirwood, while the Undying Ones in Karth give Daenerys glimpses of the future via the psychedelic Shade of the Evening drink. Alice Rivers from Fire and Blood sees the future in a storm cloud, a puddle, and in a fire, so yeah. In other words, we can see that fire is simply one of several mediums or languages through which the shape of the future, if you will, can be glimpsed. This skill of reading the flames is apparently something taught to most or perhaps even all aspiring fire mages of the Red Temple, judging from Melisandre's inner monologue from that same A Dance with Dragons chapter that we just read from. Melisandre paid the naked steel no mind. If the wildling had meant her harm, she would have seen it in her flames. Danger to her own person was the first thing she learned to see, back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the great red temple. It was still the first thing she looked for whenever she gazed into a fire. In other words, Melisandre relies on her fire visions to keep her safe to the point where dangerous men drawing steel in her presence doesn't even concern her. It's actually a lot like the fearlessness that we see in Jojen Reed, who knows the day that he will die and therefore isn't afraid of dying before then. No wonder this art was taught to Melisandre and other acolytes of the Red Temple early on, long before they're sent out into the world to do the sometimes dangerous work of Valor. This quote also gives us insight into the workings of the Order. The servants of Valor are actually slaves. Jorah Mormont further explains to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons that the Red Temple buys them as children and makes them priests or temple prostitutes or warriors. This is what happened to Melisandre, apparently. During her fire vision, we also read that strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. A man's voice called Lot Seven. The woman's voice here is surely that of her mother and speaks of tragic circumstances surrounding Melisandre's being sold into slavery in a heart-wrenching scene that must have been much like the one outside of Marine where Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah were auctioned off as slaves. 
Although it doesn't say here which red temple in which city young Melanie was sold to, it does seem that she only went to Ashai and became Melisandre of Ashai after being sold to the temple and being trained. Check out this quote from that same Melisandre POV chapter, which will also highlight the next magical skill of the Reloris that we want to discuss, which would be glamours. Jon Snow turned to Melisandre. What sorcery is this? Call it what you will. Glamour, seeming, illusion. R'hllor is lord of light, Jon Snow, and it is given to his servants to weave with it as others weave with thread. The bones help, said Melisandre. The bones remember. The strongest glamours are built of such things. A dead man's boots, a hank of hair, a bag, a finger bones. With whispered words and prayer, a man's shadow can be drawn forth from such and draped about another like a cloak. The wearer's essence does not change, only his seeming. She made it sound a simple thing and easy. They need never know how difficult it had been, or how much it had cost her. That was a lesson Melisandre had learned long before Shy. The more effortless the sorcery appears, the more men fear the sorcerer. Melisandre is saying here that she learned the principle of disguising the true cost of magic long before Ashai, which means that at some point in her life she went to Ashai to study magic and presumably only then became known as being of Ashai. Elsewhere, we're told that children and animals cannot long survive the toxic environment of Ashai and the Shadowlands, so it would make more sense if she came there as an adult as opposed to being born there. Now that we have that squared away, I should tell you that it's implied that there is a red temple in Ashai, as we're told that red priests and priestesses go there to study magic, just as a general thing, they, they go there, they're, they're found in Ashai. So it seems likely that Melisandre, who is again a slave bound in service to the Order, would have been sent to Ashai to study magic at the temple there by the Relorist higher-ups. It's also likely that those same higher-ups are the ones who instructed her to study shadowbinding, as opposed to Mel having sort of just studied such things in secret against the wishes of the Red Temple. Again, she's a slave. And if the Red Temple did instruct Melisandre to study shadowbinding, then she almost certainly isn't the first one. Which leaves us with the probability that some Red priests and priestesses simply become shadowbinders as well. Put it this way, there really is no reason for the Red Temple to send their priests and priestesses to Ashai at all, except to learn the darkest sorts of magic that can't effectively be studied anywhere else. Things like shadow binding. After all, R'hllor is titled as the god of flame and shadow, so perhaps working with shadows actually falls under the purview of R'hllorism anyway. I mean, heck, right in this last quote where we heard Melisandre explain that glamours are a kind of light weaving and therefore a province of R'hllor, the lord of light, she also said that making a glamour involves drawing a man's shadow forth from their most personal belongings, weaving with shadow as well as light, it would seem. And say, doesn't this sound a bit like Melisandre drawing from Stannis's life fires to fashion the shadow baby? Ah yes, it's shadow baby time. Melisandre's birthing of the Shadow Assassin, affectionately known to we in the fandom as the Shadow Baby, is really where the lines between R'hllorism and Shadowbinding begin to blur in a major way, turn into kind of a blurry, dark gray haze, kind of like a, kind of like a shadow. All right, just check out Melisandre's sort of theological explanation of the Shadow Baby that she gives to Davos 
as they are rowing their way to that dark cave under Storm's End. And this comes from A Clash of Kings. Shadow? Davos felt his flesh prickling. A shadow was a thing of darkness. You are more ignorant than a child, Sir Knight. There are no shadows in the dark. Shadows are the servants of light, the children of fire. The brightest flame casts the darkest shadows. Lord be praised. Once again, I, I, just, I say just overcome with joy reading things like this. Indeed, though, Melisandre, when she births a shadow baby in the pitch black cavern beneath Storm's End, she gives off light. It says, Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. So she's not just speaking esoterically of the Lord of Light casting shadows. She's literally glowing when she births the shadow baby. And one imagines her eyes like hot coals here, looking a lot like they did on the TV show at the Battle of Winterfell when she channeled all that fire magic. Which I have to say was one of the highlights of what was otherwise a kind of disappointing conclusion to the story. But let's not go there. Melisandre also speaks of fashioning the shadow from Stannis's life fires when she again speaks to Davos about shadow baby mechanics, which she seems to want to talk about a lot, in A Storm of Swords. You are the mother of darkness. I saw that under storm's end when you gave birth before my eyes. Is the brave Sir Onion so frightened of a passing shadow? Take heart then. Shadows only live when given birth by light, and the king's fires burn so low I dare not draw off any more to make another sun. It might well kill him. Melisandre moved closer. With another man, though, a man whose flames still burn hot and high. If you truly wish to serve your king's cause, come to my chamber one night. I could give you pleasure such as you have never known, and with your life fire I could make a horror. Davos retreated from her. I want no part of you, my lady, or your god. May the Seven protect me. All right, so let's break this down here. We have a fire priestess drawing on a man's life fires to become magically pregnant and then shining with light when she gives birth. But the child born is a living shadow entity of some kind, right? Now tell me, does this act fall under the purview of Relorist fire magic? Or is this what shadow binding is? We're never given any sort of explanation whatsoever for what shadow binding is really supposed to be, but it's pretty easy to see how this could fit the bill. We have a shadow entity here, and it's obviously bound to Melisandre's will as it rushes straight from her womb to carry out a specific targeted assassination. Clearly, a shadow has been bound, right? And then what about Melisandre using a magical sex act to draw forth some part of Stannis's life essence to make the shadow? Mel's about that Crowley life, apparently. What exactly is she drawing forth from Stannis here? And what do we call her ability to control it and fashion the shadow being from it? Well, Davos, when he sees the shadow baby, says that he knew the man who cast the shadow, meaning Stannis. So this thing that Melisandre is drawing forth, binding and controlling, can indeed be thought of as Stannis's shadow. Therefore, the act of siphoning away some part of Stannis's Stannis Mojo to make a shadow seems like it would have to be considered part of the shadow binding magic too. Perhaps we should think of shadow binding, if you will, 
as a more general term for an entire discipline, which encompasses several ways of working with people's shadows, if you will, and fashioning shadow entities, just as the terms fire magic or relorist magic involve several different techniques which all use magical fire. Whatever the case, it's pretty hard to think that this abominable mockery of procreation has nothing to do with shadow binding. And yet Melisandre's words and actions clearly suggest that it's part of her relorist fire magic. Melisandre's religious philosophy reconciles this with a lot of esoteric talk about how shadows are the servants of light and how the brightest flames cast the darkest shadows. But the point I want to make here is that this actually isn't just esoteric claptrap, but rather an insight into the nature of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire. Melisandre is telling us that fire magic and shadow magic are really just two sides of the same coin, and that her shadow binding is being done in service to R'hllor. And I'm telling you that this is more right than you can imagine. And we haven't even gotten to the topic of R'hllorist fire resurrection yet, which, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you involves shadow binding as well. And you can look for that in part three, which is called Fire Whites. All right, so we've been talking about how R'hllorist magic might actually be shadow binding. But what do we know about the shadow binders themselves? Well, the plain facts are that we are told very few plain facts about the shadow binders, as I mentioned. We're essentially left to guess based on the actions and powers of Melisandre and Quave, and a small blurb from The World of Ice and Fire that we're about to read. Shadow binding must be important, though, because with Quaithe offering Danny her starry wisdom, and Melisandre offering her advice and soon her magic to Jon Snow, we can observe that both Jon and Danny, the Azor High Reborn hero twins, as I like to think of them, are being advised by shadow binders as they draw close to their inevitable confrontation with the others. Interesting, no? Kind of highlights the importance of trying to understand what shadow binding is and what role it could play in the endgame events. So, in the very back pages of The World of Ice and Fire, and I mean the very back pages here, like right, right at the end, we are finally given a bit of raw information about the Shadowbinders, and although it's threadbare, we can actually consider it to be fairly reliable. That's because all of the Citadel's recent information about Ashai comes from Marwyn the Mage, the Archmaester of the Higher Mysteries at the Citadel, who studied in Ashai for years and who understands magic better than most. Most sinister of all the sorcerers of Ashai are the Shadowbinders, whose lacquered masks hide their faces from the eyes of gods and men. They alone dare to go upriver past the walls of Ashai into the heart of darkness. On its way from the mountains of the Morn to the sea, the ash runs howling through a narrow cleft in the mountains, between towering cliffs so steep and close that the river is perpetually in shadow, save for a few moments at midday when the sun is at its zenith. In the caves that pockmark the cliffs, demons and dragons and worse make their lairs. The farther from the city one goes, the more hideous and twisted these creatures become, until at last one stands before the doors of the Stygi, the corpse city at the Shadow's heart, where even the Shadowbinders fear to tread, or so the stories say. Alright, this pretty much checks out with what we've observed. Quave has the red lacquer mask, while Melisandre is, again, almost certainly masked in a glamour. 
given that the purpose of Mel's glamour may be to hide some sort of physical transformation, and we'll talk more about that in part two. I have to wonder if the same might not be true of Quave and the other masked shadowbinders as well. That would explain why they alone can go to the places most saturated with the toxic shadow magic of this area. Or why they alone are said to be able to eat the deformed and hideous fish that swim in the glistening black waters of the river Ash, which glimmer with a pale green phosphorescence by night. This may be similar to how Melisandre can swallow huge amounts of A Song of Ice and Fire's most deadly poison, the Strangler, with no effect. Now, as for dragons making their lairs in the Shadowlands beyond a shy, well, that's actually a thing. It's confirmed by Bran's coma dream vision, where his magical sight enables him to see to a shy by the shadow, where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise, as well as by numerous other clues, which you can hear all about in the Great Empire of the Dawn, Dragon Lords of Ancient Ashai video. Our two Ashai shadowbinders, Quave and Melisandre, also happen to be the two most knowledgeable people in the story when it comes to the ancient mysteries concerning Azor High, dragons, and the Long Night. And Quave in particular is almost always banging on about some great truth that awaits for Daenerys in a shy, a truth which can only revolve around Azor High, dragons, and the Long Night. In other words, it wouldn't be at all surprising if Shadowbinding turns out to have some connection to dragons and Azor High and the Long Night. Actually, I'm quite sure that it does, as I'll explain in part three. While in part two, I'm going to tell you about the most ancient secret of the Red Temple of Relor, and that's also going to be tied to, say it with me, Azor High, Dragons, and the Long Night. Speaking of dragons, we only ever see Quaithe use one kind of magic, that of the dragonglass candle, of course. She's incredibly proficient in its use, though. Quaithe is able to sit in a shy by the shadow and use her candle to reach Danny wherever she is. And with it, Quaithe can enter Danny's dreams, craft and implant dreams into Danny's mind, and even communicate to Danny through waking visions. Although other people, such as Marwyn the Mage, can also use a lit glass candle, Quaithe's mastery of it indicates long study. And Quaithe is a shadow binder. Glass candles, however, are plainly fire magic, if anything is. I mean, they literally work by being on fire with a weird, unending magical flame. And they're associated with the sorcerers of the Valyrian Empire, whose magic is well known to be rooted in blood and fire. And of course, obsidian is a volcanic glass. So, why is it a shadowbinder who's the expert with these Valerian dragonglass candles? This is a lot like the question of why is it a red priestess doing the shadowbinding? And once again, we can see a conflation of what we think of as fire magicians and shadowbinders. Once again, we find ourselves sniffing around a shy where I always picture Quaithe sitting alone in a dark tower room, hunched over her glass candle, coming up with new and more cryptic riddles to send Danny through astral projection. To go in, you must go out. To go through, you must go around. Yes, that's it, that's it. I've actually just recently made a video about the possibility, nay, certainty, of Danny using a dragon glass candle in the winds of winter. That's how she's going to learn this all-important truth of a shine that Quaithe is always talking about. So please do check out Glass Candle Sorceress if you haven't already. The point I want to make here, though, is actually more of what I've been saying all along. It's very, very hard to draw any sort of distinction between what belongs to fire magic and what belongs to 
Shadowbinder magic. Would anyone really be shocked to find Quaithe practicing some other kind of fire magic in the future? Or to learn that Quaithe has used fire magic to perhaps transform her own physiology, as it looks like Melisandre has? After all, we know from Miri Mazdur that people studying magic and arcane matters in Ashai do have a practice of exchanging information with one another. So when relorists like Melisandre go to Ashai to learn about shadowbinding, the shadowbinders are probably learning a few magics of the Red Temple in return. Nothing is free in Ashai, after all. There may well be a long-standing agreement between the Red Temple and the shadowbinders, if indeed the relorists do have a habit of sending their mages to Ashai to learn shadowbinding, as seems to be the case. Or perhaps their orders are effectively one and the same when you climb all the way to the top, with the Shadowbinders just turning out to be very high-level relorists. Why are those masks red, after all? Aha! There it is! Oh, well, not really. Or perhaps the Church of Starry Wisdom runs all of this shit. Who knows? All hail the Lion of Night. All right, friends, well, now that I've begun to show you about how Shadowbinding and Relorism are really just two heads of the same great slouching beast. I can deliver up what you people really want. Fresh endgame theory crack. Or I guess we'd say raw myth. That's right, I've got brand new theories for you in the next three videos. In part four, Chosen of Valor, we're counting backwards here, I'll be hitting you with a couple of new theories about what kind of unheard of magical acts Melisandre will perform at the wall. Hinge of the world that it is. In part three, Fire Whites, I'm going to propose some new things about what Fire Whites are and what role they will play. And in the next video, whose title is a total giveaway, I'm going to tell you what specific magical acts are really at the heart of relorism. That video is called Fire Others because, well, Fire Others are apparently a thing and because Melisandre seems to be slowly turning into one. That's right, Fire Others. And if I don't have your like button click and channel subscription now, I don't know what else I can do. Thanks in advance for leaving a comment below, and do let me know what you think about how I've parsed out Shadowbinder magic and Relorist fire magic here, because I really can't see any holes in my train of logic that they are the same thing, and that's just gonna get worse as we go. So as to the name change, let me just say real quick that my name is actually David, which means beloved. So David Lightbringer amounts to beloved of Venus, which I have to say, it feels pretty great. I have had fun rehabilitating the word Lucifer these past seven years. And although the show Lucifer probably did more for it overall, I mean, that is a handsome devil right there. No one can say that I didn't do my part. However, I have at times wondered if carrying around a name many associate with the devil hasn't limited my reach a little bit. You have to admit, it's probably costing me to some extent. And more than that, I plan to use David Lightbringer as my pen name as I begin writing and publishing books. Beginning with Paradise Game, which yes, I'm still working on, it's about halfway done. Because there actually are already a couple of published authors out there called David Beers, which is my real name. I really like the meaning of David Lightbringer and it kind of honors where I came from. So there you go. Everything I do from here on out will be under that banner and I appreciate very much all of your support and interest. Check out the links in the video description below if you'd like to support the program and thanks to all of our patrons and to all of you sending in donations via paypal.me slash mythicalastronomy. Most of all, thanks to you for watching the video all the way to the end too. And 
I'll see you with part two very soon. <laughs> <laughs>